New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Thank you very much, Ali and Mark, for leading us this morning and for your prayers, uh, Ali, and indeed uh, all of you for your prayers. Uh, we've had a great week at uh, this WE conference. and uh, enjoyed it uh, thoroughly. Um, I think I just want to express a, a, a really heartfelt thanks to the, uh, the board and the organizing team, along with all the volunteers who have worked tirelessly to make this week possible. You know, in many ways, speakers come in and we get the best of it because we're well looked after. Uh, we've had wonderful hosting from uh, Alan and Pauline. There's even sometimes a personal shopping service from them. Um, with the, the shirt I'm wearing today was a gift that arrived at breakfast time. Um, and uh, yeah, we have a great time. But behind the scenes, there are people working incredibly hard to make it all possible. And I think I just want to encourage you to uh, now uh, express our appreciation to that team. And one of the things that immediately struck us, this is our first time at New Horizon, but one of the things that immediately struck us was that this is an event which is generous in its breadth and its heart, and at the same time grounded in the things that really matter. And uh, that's a very precious combination to hold together. It's not always easy to hold it together. And uh, I guess even for some of us this week, there will have been things where either we felt a little bit pushed beyond our comfort zone or a little bit uh, held within somebody else's comfort zone. That's what generosity of spirit sometimes demands. But it's a precious thing. It's a God-honoring thing. And uh, I, I want to very much commend the, uh, the board here for maintaining that spirit of generosity where People from different backgrounds and different generations can feel their unity in Christ and learn from the richness of the wider body of Christ. So thank you, and please keep going, and don't let that spirit ever uh, get, get lost. Well, we're going to uh, turn to Psalm 72 and have a wee Bible reading. And it's a great chapter. So it is. I'm really learning, aren't I? <laughs> Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, may the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him with gifts. 
May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May corn abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him. And they will call him blessed. Praise be to the God, uh, to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, our great King, And through the inspiration of his word and by the illumination of his spirit, we look full in his wonderful face. We pray that the things of the world would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We pray also that in another sense, the creation as his creation would grow strangely clear and beautiful and arrestingly significant as we reimagine it in the light of his glory and grace and the inbreaking goodness of his kingdom. So come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, we pray, that our minds might be renewed and that our hearts might be refashioned to be orientated towards your great glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we uh, get towards the end of uh, this week, I guess there are two things particularly that I very much hope that we're all going to take away from uh, these morning studies. The first is that we do need to give attention to our minds. And we need to seek their ongoing renewal because as we saw right at the beginning and hopefully it's been underlined every day, the way we think is both a key indicator of our spiritual health and a very strong determinant of our spiritual health and growth. We need to give attention to our minds. But the second thing that I hope uh, you'll take away is that in scriptural thinking, our minds, our thinking isn't just our intellect. It includes that, but it's wider. It's rooted in and shaped by the whole of our human makeup. It's about our choices, about what really matters, about the things that we pursue, our deepest values, those gutsy choices which matter so much and shape so much of our thinking. These are a core component of what Scripture means by our minds. And so time and again, we found that the Scripture is encouraging us to dig deep into those motivational things which shape the way 
that we think. We need to take our hearts seriously if we're going to take the renewing of our minds seriously. There was once a fellow who was uh, boasting, an Englishman, boasting that he was born an Englishman and would die an Englishman. And a passing Irishman overheard and retorted, good heavens, man, have you no wee ambition? (laughs) I wonder how you feel about ambition. Because there's one of those deep heart things, isn't it? Ambition. You might say, oh, I don't have any ambition. I'm not like that. I'm, I'm a laid-back Irishman or woman. No, no ambition. But there's more than one way to be ambitious. You can be ambitious for wealth and success and social power or popularity and fame. But you can also be ambitious for a quiet life. And it is ambition because you do pretty much anything to achieve it. It drives your decisions. Or you might be the always on the go type. You're not particularly interested about an amazing career or something, but you're always on the go. You're a child of FOMO, you know, that fear of missing out thing. Your ambition is just never to be bored, and you'll do anything you can to achieve that. I think we're all ambitious in the sense that we all live for something. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talks a lot about what he calls our over-desires, by which he means those core driving desires, the things that we believe we cannot live without. You could equally call them our primary ambitions. And they may, and indeed they often are, be things which are good in themselves, But once they become our primary ambitions, once they become our over-desires, to use Keller's language, they become the things that mold our values, shape our thinking, and ultimately consume our lives. Whatever we worship eats us alive because it becomes of ultimate importance to us. So this morning, we're going to land our exploration of the renewed mind on this issue of ambition, which is a core part of what the Bible means by our mind. And we're going to ask the question, is there a primary ambition which isn't driven by a need for success, but is rather the overflow of grace? Is there a primary ambition that doesn't decay into idolatry, but that nurtures rather than hindering the renewal of our minds. Is there a primary ambition for Christian believers? Well, according to Jesus, the answer to that question is a very definite yes. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So Jesus is saying, here is the one thing of supreme value. Here is the ultimate primary ambition. Here is the one thing which it is worth giving up everything you have in order to obtain. And it is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which isn't a place, 
It's a dynamic reality. The kingdom of God is the in-breaking reign of God in which he asserts his rule not to oppress, but to liberate. Not to distort, but to put things right. The in-breaking reign of God which puts things right. And let's face it, there is so much in the world around us that is not right, isn't there? So much that is broken, so much oppression, so much distortion, so much sadness, so much pain. So much which when we stop and think about it, makes us long for God to step in and assert his reign of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when we have begun as Christians to experience that in-breaking reign of God in our own lives, as the liberating power of grace has come and begun its transforming work in us, then we want that to overflow to the world around us. And in that desire, our minds begin to be renewed. And the coming of the kingdom of God begins to become that deepest undergirding longing, that primary ambition of our hearts, so that we learn to pray as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. The lead request of the great prayer. Your kingdom come. This, I believe, can be our primary ambition, shaping the renewal of our minds after the purpose and mission of God. And Psalm 72, which we've just read, puts flesh on the bones of Jesus' prayer. I believe Jesus' prayer was, in one sense, the most ambitious of all prayers. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What ambition, in the very best sense of the word. And here, that ambition gets filled out. It uh, presents as a prayer for an ancient king and his reign. The title of the psalm, Of Solomon, may mean that it was written by Solomon, but probably more likely it means it was written about Solomon, very possibly by his father, King David. If you look at verse 20, it rather suggests that this was the last of King David's psalms. We're not sure, but probably it's not so much by Solomon as about Solomon. And with just a glance, you can immediately see that this is a prayer of driving desire and ambition. Verse 2, may he judge your people in righteousness. Verse 3, may the mountains bring prosperity to the people. May he defend the afflicted among his people. May he crush the oppressor at the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, and so on and so on. There are 12 mays, 12 appeals for the kingdom of God to break in. This is a very ambitious prayer. But it's also a supernatural prayer. It's a very special prayer birthed by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of this ancient psalmist, articulating a vision of a reign which frankly went far beyond anything ever experienced in Solomon's kingdom. It's a vision of the ultimate kingdom. It's a vision only fulfilled in the kingdom of of which Christ himself is the king, the kingdom of God. Now, like yesterday's psalm, Psalm 73, this one, I think, is structured in those same kind of parallel layers that the scholars call uh, chiasm. You might think of it as like 
the, uh, the kind of layers of an onion. I think we've got a picture on the screen. There we are, of, uh, of those layers working from the front and the back into that central section with its core emphasis. So let's just walk through it. The first focus is on the king of Israel, whose reign is one of justice and righteousness. Verses 1 to 4, we'll read 1 and 2. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. Those of you who like seeing chiasms will spot a chiasm also just in those two verses. The kind of king that God wants in charge of his kingdom is a king of righteousness and justice because he's that kind of God, a God who loves righteousness and loves justice. And the result of his righteousness, verse 2, will be prosperity for the people because, verse 3, good government blesses people. And the result of his justice will be rescue for the oppressed, verse 4. The king of Israel, his reign of justice and righteousness. But then verses 5 to 7, the king of Israel brings a reign also of lasting blessing. Verse 5, may he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. Now it's very risky for an Englishman to tread on the ground of Irish politics. But for a moment, I just want you to imagine a first minister. I'm not talking of any individual. I'm just wondering, could you imagine of any of the first ministers or deputies that you've had uh, since Stormont was established in its current form, could you ever imagine thinking, it's so good when they are in charge, I wish their term would go on forever and ever and ever and ever, as long as the moon lasted. Could you ever imagine that? Maybe you could, but we certainly couldn't in England of our prime minister. No, usually a few years is plenty, isn't it? And then we're ready for a change. But when God's ideal king is reigning, people want it to last forever. Verse 5, may he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. Because the reign of God's king brings ultimate blessing to those over whom he reigns. And it lasts, blessing that lasts. Verse 6, may he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. We are so used to the abuse of power, aren't we? That we become suspicious of the very notion of power. But here is a vision of power that refreshes. Here is a vision of power that, that replenishes and renews, a power that lifts oppression rather than landing oppression, a wonderful, wonderful picture. And they want it to continue until the moon is no more. Now, of course, none of Israel's ancient kings ever lived forever or reigned forever. So none of them ultimately could bring about this lasting blessing of the kingdom of God. But friends, we know the king who can. King Jesus, who is risen from death and lives forever so that through him the blessing of God enters our lives and stays. It doesn't depart when the king dies because he doesn't die. He lives forever. Well, so far the focus has been on the king and his reign within Israel. But, but as we get to verses 8 to 14, which is really the central section of the psalm, the whole horizon broadens. 
And we see that this king of Israel is going to be called to reign over the nations. And the nature of that reign is that it will lift the poor and the oppressed. Remember, this is central. This is the key to our psalm. Verse 8. May he, Israel's king, rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. What a stunning vision. It's, it's as if this ancient prayer has suddenly kind of burst its banks and is now flowing out beyond Israel to all the nations of the world. Verse 9, may the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him with gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Wow. I met a guy at a conference in Melbourne, Australia, 10 years ago, whose whole life mission was set when he read verse 9. May the desert tribes bow before him. And now he's completely focused on mobilizing people to reach the, uh, the desert tribes of North Africa for Jesus, largely nomadic and Muslim tribes. And uh, we were there a few years later. We met him about 10 years ago. We were there a few years later, and we met two couples who, under his influence, had started to invest their lives into reaching those desert tribes. Wonderful. But it's not just the desert tribes of North Africa. Verse 10, Tarshish, probably southern Spain. Sheba, probably Saudi Arabia. Seba, somewhere in North Africa. And all of them included within this amazing kingdom. And in case any part of the globe was missing, verse 11, may all kings bow to him and all nations serve him. Can you see why I call this the most ambitious of Psalms? It's global in its view. Now, some people say that the work of global mission is largely over. Friends, it isn't. We've heard this week, haven't we, about the need for Bible translation for about a quarter of the world's population. We've heard about the hunger for the gospel through radio and internet. We've heard about the challenges of modern-day slavery. There is so much more still to be done. Saudi, mentioned in the psalm, less than 0.3% Bible-believing Christians in Saudi. In most of North Africa, the Christian church is tiny. In swathes of the Middle East, the gospel is unknown. And of course, in Western Europe today, even the basic gospel events are virtually unknown by a rising generation. What are we going to do about that? Are we just going to cry into our coffee and wish days were like they used to be? No, friends, that's not the right response, let me say. The right response is to see these as days of unparalleled opportunity. My friend Gav Calver, who heads up the Evangelical Alliance that I do some work with, he says, these are the toughest times in the UK to be a Christian, and these are the best and the most exciting times in the UK to be a Christian. Because actually, there are generations in the past who've been inoculated from the gospel because they think they understand it because of a little bit of schoolboy religion where they never really got what the gospel was. And you had to break through all the layers of misunderstanding before you could talk to them about grace. It's no longer like that. People are often much more of a blank slate. They don't know. And there's a great opportunity and a curiosity once they begin to understand that you're not just talking 
about religion that they assumed. It's something fresh. It's something different to what they had understood. There are wonderful opportunities. And in many ways, the situation that we find ourselves in increasingly in a secularizing UK is much more like the situation of the, uh, the early generations of the Christian church. It's a much more missional situation. It's a much more normal situation. It's the situation in which most of the global church has existed for most of its history. This is not a time to batten down the hatches and think, oh, let's just give up and slowly die. Now, this is a time of great opportunity. This is a time for gospel kingdom ambition, friends. It's a prayer that still needs to be prayed. May all the kings bow down to him and all nations serve King Jesus. And let me just say, we're not just talking about a mission that is far away that other people do. We believe in global mission. We believe it's important to send people into the nations and the unreached peoples. But this is for us. I don't believe there's a special class of people called missionaries and then the rest of us are normal Christians. We are all called into the mission of God wherever he has placed us. And the opportunities are immense in our day, right here around us. But I love this next bit. Why is it that the nations will bow before God's king? What is it that will win them? Will they just be kind of hammered down by his power? Will they just be beaten up by his great arguments? Is that how the nations will be won? No. Not conquest. Not coercion. Not domination. Not firepower. How does it happen? Let me read from verse 11. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him for, because... He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. In the words of Alec Matia, the kings and nations are won by the quality of mercy in the king, by the quality of mercy in the king. Friends, that is grace. That is the kingdom of God. Here is power that doesn't hold down but lifts up. Power that doesn't take but gives. Power that doesn't damage but heals. And nothing has changed. Our task as those who work for the kingdom of God is still, yes, to proclaim the reign of the king and call the people of our cities and nations and communities to bow before him and the people of all the nations of the world to love and trust and obey him. But it is still the quality of his mercy that will win them. To be persuasive, yes, the gospel must be heard in compelling words, but friends, it must also be seen in practical action, in love, in the pursuit of justice, in compassion and care. Tim Keller, again, talks about the need to press value into our communities so that sometimes our communities come to us and say things like, look, we really don't believe very much of what you stand for, but we could not imagine this community without you because you are good news within it. That's what wins the nations. It's the quality of mercy in the king. It's the gospel in action 
in lives pursuing justice and mercy and compassion and healing. Friends, if we bemoan that people are not coming to our churches anymore, let us ask ourselves the question, can the people around us see the quality of the mercy of our king in the way that we engage with the community where he's placed us? Because if we can't, if they can't, then we need to do something about it before we moan that they don't come any longer. Do you see the point? It's the quality of mercy in the king that will win the hearts of the nations. Verses 15 to 17. The king of the nations, his reign of lasting blessing. Echoing verses 5 to 7. But now it isn't just for Israel, it's for the nations. Verse 17. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations will be blessed through him. And they will call him blessed. Of course, this is a vision of Genesis 12, 2 and 3. That foundational promise to Abraham really in many ways launching so much of the whole story of salvation in Scripture. But it's now gloriously fulfilled as Abraham's great descendant, the Lord Jesus, ultimately becomes the means of the blessing promised to all the nations. I suppose if you'd... I've just finished 18 years uh, as pastor of a church in Southampton. And I'm slightly exaggerating it when I say this, but... If you look at the first 10 years or so of my work, quite honestly, if I thought my sermons were okay, and if the church seemed generally happy, I kind of thought, job done. God forgive me. And then we decided in our church that we needed to have a review of our whole engagement in global mission. We have quite a lot of mission partners around the world, and we thought, we haven't really thought hard about this for a while. So we got together our leadership team. We got together um, our mission support group, and uh, we spent a weekend together to seek God and to pray. And in advance of it, we read what for me became a life-transforming book by uh, Chris Wright called The Mission of God's People. If you've never read it, I heartily recommend it to you. And it gave us a whole vision of what our mission uh, was to be, a mission which embraced the nations and which uh, was, was what they call integral or holistic in its nature, a mission of word and of action combined together to witness to the sovereignty and grace of Christ. And it, uh, it, it was a, a seminal kind of moment for us. But as we studied and thought and reflected on what would be our vision for our global mission partners, there was this nagging awareness tugging away at our hearts. How can we say we're going to send people away from us to engage in mission, both in word and in deed, to witness to the glory of Christ? How can we say that we're going to do that if that isn't the focus of what we're doing in our own city? We have a footfall of, I think, about 10,000 people an hour go past our church building right in the city center of Southampton. Are we not called to do there what we're sending people away to do in other nations? It was a deeply, deeply challenging moment, resting on the, uh, the foundation that there is one mission of God for the whole world, and all of us are called to participate in that mission, whether globally or locally. And honestly, it began to set in train a whole kind of run of events that changed my whole vision for what church and ministry were about. 
we started to pray that God would give us opportunities to serve our city. And within about two weeks, the people who ran the local food bank came to us and said, we would like food banks to run in the church rather than in a warehouse so that actually nobody can stop us praying with the people that we give food to. Would you be up for hosting that? And we thought, we've just been praying for opportunities to serve the city. Uh, it wasn't a hard decision, so we did. And from there, a whole raft of things began to emerge with opportunities for debt relief through Christians Against Poverty and work with homeless people and work with internationals and refugees. And, you know, some people would say to us, John, are you doing, you know, you're doing all this kind of action stuff. Have you forgotten about proclamation and evangelism? I've got to tell you, we were doing almost no evangelism before we started doing some action. But now that we're actually serving the city, we have friends who are not Christians. And so we can talk to them about Jesus. And we talk to them from a place where they see that we're serious about serving our community. And it makes such a difference. And the other thing that sometimes happens is that people see what's happening who are not Christians, and they want to be part of it. I told you about Sue the other day and her, uh, her journey where she wanted to start serving within the, 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 the homeless breakfast. And actually, in that experience of serving alongside Christians, she herself came to faith. There's been absolutely no let-up in evangelism when we got convinced that we needed to serve the city as well as reach it for Jesus. John Stott used to talk about it as like two, uh, the, the two blades of scissors that cut together, word and deed, together give, uh, bearing witness to the kingdom of God. And it's been absolutely life transformational for me. Uh, that's really what led to the, uh, the, the cube thing that I was talking about yesterday. There we go. There's a little summary of it up on, up on the screen. And uh, I think we're going to see if we can get some of those graphics up on the website so that you can download them if you're interested in doing that. But that calling to serve and reach our communities is now really at the heart of what I think the church's calling is all about. Because... The king of the nations is commissioned by God to bring the blessing of God to the nations. And if you track the story of the blessing of the God through, through Genesis, you'll find it's very much a spiritual blessing, but it's a very practical, nitty-gritty blessing as well. You think, of, you think of, uh, of, of Joseph later in the book of Genesis and the impact that he had uh, on his own people, saving them from famine, but also on the community of Egypt and on Potiphar's household, which was blessed because Joseph, as a blessed follower of Yahweh, was there. Well, there we are. The psalm finishes celebrating the uh, wonderful deeds of, God's, of God, whose glory will spill over from Israel and fill the nations. Verse 18, praise be to the God, the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. When God steps in to reign, things are put right. There is justice for the oppressed. Power is wielded with righteousness. People are blessed 
and the blessing lasts. The guilty are forgiven. The weak are rescued. The poor are lifted. The nations are drawn in and united. Now, of course, this ancient prayer, with all its richness and all its bursting, burgeoning ambition, is a prayer that we can take on and, in a sense, appreciate even more than the first person who prayed it ever could. Because this kingdom, which the prayer envisages, is a kingdom which has come in the person of Jesus. It is a today kingdom, because the true and ultimate king, the Lord Jesus himself, has come. And through him, this saving reign of God has begun. And people from all the nations are bowing before him and coming into his blessing. Remember, they love and worship him because of the quality of his mercy. Because his blessing comes not to the strong who believe they can earn it, but to the weak who know they never deserve it, but need it. And this was a mercy supremely displayed on the cross, where he died to pay the penalty for all our rebellion and failure and to break the power of evil and oppression so that we could be forgiven, brought back into his blessing and set free from all that binds us. And so it is that people from all the nations bow before him and in that great vision of revelation, proclaim of King Jesus, you are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for God from every nation, tribe, and language. What will it look like for us to make the kingdom our primary ambition? Well, could you just flick across to the New Testament for our last few minutes together? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 to 12. Because it seems to me one of the many things that holds us back from pursuing the mission of God is that we get crushed by the idea that mission is something that we're meant to do solo. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, I'm meant to have my friends and my colleagues and I'm meant to evangelize and reach them for Jesus, all Todd by myself. And most of us think, I'm just not that kind of person, I just can't do it. And so we give up and hope that somebody else does. What I love about 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12, is it's not addressed to individuals. It's addressed to yous, as you say here. It's addressed to churches, to communities. And it calls us together into the mission of God. Verse 9 of 1 Peter 2. You, yous, we might say are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, I'd love to spend another half an hour on this, but you wouldn't love that, so I'm not going to. I know coffee uh, looms for all of us. Let me just give you a few headings. Here is a vision of what I call a standout community that fights 
social poverty, going back to the categories that we had the other day. Verse 9, you together are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Friends, mission is meant to be a team sport. Individualistic models of mission are very crushing, but community models are very energizing. Do you know, they can even sometimes give you quite a lot of fun. Our churches are called to be communities in which our love for one another makes the message of Jesus visible. It's the chosen people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation that together declares the praises of him who calls us out of darkness. A community, but a community into which others can come and experience the same love that they see lived between the people of God. A community that fights social poverty. It's also a healing community that fights emotional poverty. Did you see those words there? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Chosen, royal, holy, special. Aren't those beautiful words? And they're incredibly powerful words for those who feel abandoned, excluded, left behind, insignificant. Friends, the message of Jesus is not just a get-out-of-hell-for-free card. So, there's so much more. The rejected are invited into a chosen community. The forgotten into a royal community. Those trapped in shame into a holy community. The abandoned into a community which is God's special possession. Maybe some of us here this morning need to allow one or more of those words to sink deep into our hearts with all their healing power. Chosen, royal, holy, special. Not because we measure up. We don't. We're messed up but because grace has come into our lives and we are now in Christ so that all the beauty that is characteristic of him is now ascribed to us in God's sight. But these aren't just words to absorb, they're words to share, they're words to take out as we fight emotional poverty, the emotional poverty that cripples so many lives, a healing community. But also, crucially, a vocal community that fights spiritual poverty. Verse 9, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We were excluded, but Jesus brings us into a community and a people. Verse 10, we were guilty but Jesus paid for our sins to bring us mercy. We were in darkness, but he brought us into God's wonderful light. We've got wonderful news to proclaim. This is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? It isn't just about finding a few rules and rituals, something to do on a Sunday morning. It's about discovering the very relationship for which we were created, a relationship with God who loves us perfectly and unconditionally, a relationship broken through human sin and selfishness, but restored at the cross of Jesus. And we are not meant to be silent about it. We are to declare the praises of him. I'm often challenged by that. 
Because sometimes there's a little opportunity to say something about Jesus. And don't you find the words just kind of feel like they're falling off the side of your mouth very uncomfortably. Oh dear, please can we talk about the weather? I mean, maybe you don't do that, but that's my struggle. But no, that's not the tone of evangelism that Peter's envisaging. He's talking about declaring the praises of him who called us. Let it be known that Jesus isn't just an option if you want him or a top-up if you need a bit more. No, he is wonderful. He's unique. He's excellent. And there's no greater privilege available to human beings than to know him and to be his disciples and to be absorbed into the mission of his kingdom. We are called to be a vocal community with the good news that fights spiritual poverty. And finally, a distinctive community, fighting material poverty as we serve our community. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I'd like to say more, but time has gone. Friends, What a kingdom ambition is held out before us in this psalm and in 1 Peter. A determination to work together as communities and with Jesus to fight social poverty, spiritual poverty, emotional poverty, material poverty, because we want to put things right according to the values of the kingdom of God. Now, here's the question. If a friend looked at our bank statements... Would it be obvious that our deepest longing and prevailing ambition is the kingdom of God? If a life coach looked at our diaries to see how we used our time, would it be obvious that the kingdom of God is our first ambition? If a visitor spent a week in our churches to see their life in action, would it be obvious that we're not turned in on ourselves, but turned out in the mission of God, with the kingdom of God, our primary ambition. I wonder what will be the impact in your life and mine of this week at New Horizon. A great time with friends and family? Yes, wonderful. Hasn't it been great to be together? A great feast of spiritual food? Well, we certainly feel very well fed, and I hope you do. Great memories of inspiring praise and worship. Wonderful how enriching that is. These are great things. But our theme suggests that God is looking for more. He's looking for deep change. A liberating, life-giving encounter with his grace. Which overflows into the renewing of our hearts and minds. And orientates our core ambition towards Jesus. And the kingdom. That he should be honored and worshipped in every sphere of our lives. And that's as Jesus taught us to pray, his kingdom would come. Will that be the fruit of this week in your life? Are you willing to give up small and life-diminishing ambitions for control and popularity and mere success? And will you allow God's word and spirit so to renew your heart and mind, that the primary driving ambition lines up with that great prayer of Jesus. Your kingdom come. Let's pray together. Jesus, all for Jesus.
all I am and have and ever hope to be. All of my ambitions, hopes and plans, I surrender these into your hands. For it's only in your will that I am free. It's only in your will that I am free. Jesus, all for Jesus. All I am and have and ever hope to be. Fill us with your spirit and with hearts alive with kingdom ambition. For the glory of our great Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.